Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I think that finding meaning and purpose in life is important. I mean, it doesn't really matter what your circumstance is, um, whether it's a healthcare journey, an accident, loss of job, loss of community, that having an intrinsic value in yourself that you have something that gives you meaning and purpose beyond your circumstances is key. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with American hero and a man of great faith, Chaplain Brad Brown. In 2008, Brad was a recent widow and single father of two teenage kids. He was also the chaplain at the local hospital in Paradise, California. That November, Paradise became the epicenter of what would be known as the Camp Fire. The campfire took 85 lives, burned more than 11,000 homes, and at times the fire raged more than 80 football fields a minute. While thousands of residents fled the city, Brad Brown hopped in his minivan and drove the opposite direction, back to the hospital he worked to honor his commitment to make sure every patient got out of paradise alive. Brad loaded two ICU patients and a hospice patient into his cramped minivan. Brad spent hour upon hour driving while barely being able to see through the smoke as cars, trees, and homes burned all around him. Brad and all three of his patients made it out of paradise that day. So did his two children and every single patient at Feather River Hospital where Brad worked. When Brad told me the story of driving through the flames that day, my jaw dropped, and yours will too. But it was when he told me about why he chose to return to paradise when 95% of his city was gone that warmed my heart. You see, when Brad was losing his wife and about to become a single father, the city of paradise wrapped him with love. And when the city of paradise needed Brad, he knew that he needed to stay and give that love right back. His story is a reminder of how helping to take care of others can ultimately heal ourselves. Here's today's story with the courageous chaplain, Brad Brown. Okay, Brad, hello, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your podcast. Brad, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? I would introduce myself as a chaplain who finds value in people, a person of faith, and a Paradise Campfire survivor. 
And tell me, what was the backdrop of your upbringing and your childhood? I grew up in a small family in the country in Southern Oregon. My family was one blue-collar, hardworking Christian family. So a lot of morals and values that I have today come from my upbringing. They believed in education. They believed in hard work, the American spirit of finding value in other people. And so for me, my upbringing actually has been very significant in forming the person I am today. I want to fast forward to your life and meeting Malia, who is your wife and the mother of your children. Tell me about how you and Malia met and fell in love. So it wasn't necessarily love at first sight on her part. <laughs> on her part. <laughs> so we, we actually went to school together, high school. Um, she was a year ahead of me. So I met her my junior year of high school, her senior year. And she, for some reason, didn't find me a person of value in her mind to date. And so in high school, pretty much we just were friends, came to college. And at college, um, she was a sophomore. And I went to the same university that she did. Remember, it was probably the first week of school, that first weekend, my freshman year. And I remember seeing her at an event and she mesmerized me. And so that evening, I actually asked her out on a date. And she and her cousin decided to kind of go together and just spend some time that evening with me. And I realized after that first evening, it wasn't really a date, it was more of just a, a friend event that I wanted to date this girl. And I don't know if I just wore her down or <laughs> if, if she actually did have an interest after three months of me pursuing her. But we went to a movie, went out to eat, and um, that started a, an incredible relationship from then on. What was it about Malia that mesmerized you? How would you encapsulate her? I think initially, maybe I'm speaking out of my own experience, but um, she's absolutely beautiful girl. And so that normal attraction was initially what caught my eye. But she's just a solid person. Her interests were in mathematics. She had known that she wanted to be a mathematician since she was probably in seventh or eighth grade. And I went to college, not realizing that I actually had to sign up for some sort of a degree. And so you know, she just found values in life that um, I shared, but also values that I really appreciated that I didn't have. Eventually you get married and have two mm -hmm. kids and move to Paradise, California, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. What brought you to Paradise? So we spent multiple years in ministry, different places, Washington State, eventually Montana, and never in California. So in the state of Montana, where I was pastoring before we moved to Paradise, California, I had an opportunity to be involved in police chaplaincy. I ended up coordinating the police department chaplaincy program for a number of years. Found a lot of value in it. Didn't really think of it as a career. And as time progressed, about three years into our time in Montana, Malia just one day was in the kitchen. And she, she's always had a strong faith and a strong journey with God over the years and so she had these random thoughts. And then those thoughts continued and said, you'll move to California, that you have cancer, and that you need the resources that California would offer to you for healthcare, and that you'll be okay. And about three months later, an opportunity came to move to Paradise, California. Someone reached out from here 
about a director of chaplain's position for the Feather River Hospital here in Paradise. And they asked if I was interested. And because of my police chaplaincy experience, it actually intrigued me. And a couple months later, we were packed up and moving to California. So Paradise was a place that, of all places in California, due to the name, <laughs> might be a, a safe place and a, and a positive place to raise our children. I know. I did love asking you the question, what made you move to Paradise? <laughs> yes. Who wouldn't move to Paradise, even <laughs> if it is in California? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So Malia's premonition was right. You moved to California, mm -hmm. and she did, in fact, have cancer. Correct. Tell me about the diagnosis and what you remember about that diagnosis and how it unfolded from there. We knew two people in this part of California when we arrived. And three weeks after we moved into this community, about two days after we moved into our home, Malia was, was so sick one morning that I literally had to carry her to the car and drove her to our hospital. I assumed it was the flu. She, she assumed it was the flu. So we arrived at the hospital and one of the physicians, Dr. Pastana, he happened to be on duty when Malia arrived and he realized that there was something abnormal with this lady. She was in her 30s at that time. And he figured based on lab results that he got back that there was something significant going on. And so he traced back and finally realized that after some scans, lab results, that she had cancer and it had spread to her liver. So it metastasized from her colon to her liver. It was colon cancer was the origin. And I sat down, I remember still vividly with Malia, with Dr. Pastana, and he had a solemn look on his face and said, I, I don't have good news for you. Malia has cancer. It's significant. Stage four, it has completely inundated her liver and basically occluded her colon. So her colon was almost completely shut off. And he said, my current prognosis for her is that she may live a month, possibly a little longer. And I'm not sure what to do for your family at this point. What happens in your body in the room in hearing that news? I'm just curious what happens and what you and Malia do when you walk out that door and close it. So I just felt my heart drop. <laughs> this is, you know, something that was outside of any of our control. The prognosis was not good. The diagnosis was significant. Malia is a person that can take on big challenges and put her heart into it. And to her, she initially too was stunned, but her reaction was, you can either fight or flight, and hers was to fight. And so she said, you know what? This is not going to get me down. We're going to get through this. And her initial reaction basically was, it doesn't matter if it's stage four. It doesn't matter that it's so advanced that I have a month to live. I'm going to get through this. And that's been Malia's motto through life. It didn't matter the challenges that came. She just took them on full throttle and gave her everything. And so when Dr. Pastana came back and said to us, let's give this a try. Let's send you to the best of the best. And he'd worked at Cal Pacific Medical Center and said, I'm going to send you immediately, have you transported there, send you to one of my friends who is a colorectal surgeon. He said, if I was in your situation, that's who I'd go to. And so he decided to give Malia a fighting chance, even though the odds were all against us. How long did Malia live after that diagnosis? 
And what are some of the changes that she made in her life? Because I know she made some shifts. She lived six years post-diagnosis, which was miraculous to all of the physicians that she had. And the shifts that she made in her life, they were significant, but yet they weren't. For her, her value was in her kids, in her faith, in her family. And so what it did is really highlight those values for her. So for us, we had been doing homeschooling for our children. My wife is a, is a teacher by profession. And she just wanted to spend that quality time with our kids. And this is since you know they were in kindergarten. And so that was one of the, not shifts, but determinations that gave her a drive to succeed as long as she could with her goal of basically making our kids the kind of kids that she wanted them to be not only as, as children, but as adults as well. We took trips. We tried to educate them, broaden their perspectives. But most of all, that one-on-one time with her was important. And this is all within the context of some serious procedures that she went through. There's multiple times where she almost died. Miraculously, she came back. And so we were dealing with all of the healthcare journey at the same time trying to minimize it in the life of our children and just spend that quality time. She never complained. It was, it was amazing to me through six years of health, of chemotherapy and radiation and oblations and just different kinds of procedures that were tried out, many of them experimental on Malia. She never complained. She just was happy for each day that she was given in life. As you're talking, I think about that she was using her pain for purpose, that she was finding great purpose in what she was going through and meaning which is, I think, an incredible way to face that chapter in her life. There's a beautiful story about your daughter and Malia before her passing, and I'd love for you to share that. So our daughter, who was the youngest and not as settled into life, was really the concern of my wife, Malia. And so she spent significant time with her academically, with just helping her to view life and process life. She just wanted to somehow have the assurance that Alina was going to be okay in life. And Alina was awarded, unbeknownst to us, that this was coming, and a scholarship for merit. And that merit scholarship was given to one student out of the eighth grade. And it was a student that showed that they were academically sound, that in this case, as a Christian school, that their faith was important to them, and that they really were a person that made a significant difference with their fellow students. I came back after graduation, showed the merit scholarship to Malia. She wasn't able to even get out of bed at that time. Told her the story, and you could just sense this peace come over Malia, as if her goal in life had been fulfilled. And a week later, she passed away. Thank you for sharing that, Brad. That is a beautiful, beautiful story. And I'm so glad that she had that moment of peace. After Malia's passing, obviously you and the kids are experiencing tremendous grief and loss. The Camp Fire, which is the deadliest fire in the history of California, swept through your community. And you know, I remember at the time reading this, Brad, and when I was doing the research, when I read that it moved a football field a second, Mm. it just, to me, the gravity of the devastation and that visualization of what everybody must have experienced. And this happens in your community. 
where you and Malia had been raising your family months after you lost her. At the time, you're a chaplain at the local hospital comforting people who are sick, which now makes me think you were the perfect person to comfort her at home. It's your expertise. But I do want to talk about the campfire, which is what brought us to have this conversation. What do you remember about that day? I'm, I'm always curious if you remember anything about the moments or hours before this deadly fire was occurring all around you. Living in California, especially in areas like we do, we're in the foothills of the Sierra in paradise. One of the things you're always aware of is the fact that fires could devastate your community. But nobody ever dreams of having your entire town burned down. I mean, it's, it's the worst nightmare that you can imagine. And so that particular morning, it was you know, November, end of the summer. We're all hoping for rain, uh, no significant rain the entire summer. And at that point, that particular day, there was 1% humidity. The winds were kicking up. We had gusts of 50-mile-an-hour winds. I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning getting ready for work, getting the kids ready for school. My son, who was 16 at the time, my daughter, Alina, 13, packing their bags, eating breakfast. And as I was walking them out the door, we looked up. And even though our view is obscured by some trees in our, on our property, we could see this cloud of smoke that was starting to, to form over our horizon. And so the kids and I did the normal pulled out our phones to check and see where this fire was coming from. And eventually we discovered this is in Polga. And this is probably about 7.20 in the morning. And the fire had started at 6.30 that morning. So we're almost an hour into the initial campfire. It wasn't significant enough. I didn't even know where Polga was. My children didn't, you know, 20 miles east of us in some remote area. So we didn't, we didn't really have any level of concern other than the smoke. But with that smoke, there was actually some ash falling too. It wasn't hot ash. So I sent my kids off to school and went back in the house, finished getting ready for work. And as uh, at about eight o'clock, I headed out for the hospital. Um, and at that point, as I was driving out the driveway, I realized that that smoke that I had seen earlier had significantly increased, that that cloud actually um, had become basically an entire cloud encompassing our community. At that point, I still didn't know how significant this fire was. For those people who don't live in California, I can so relate to that because we have had wildfires, evacuations, you know, school being shut down, parents racing to get kids, and it goes from zero to 60. And you're also so used to it that they'll say there's a fire here, but it's contained and everybody's going about their normal days because it's part of living here. So I think that's important for people who don't experience being in close proximity to wildfires is that it eerily feels kind of normal. Yes, unfortunately, it does. <laughs> Living in California, you anticipate it. There's fires every summer, like you mentioned. And so it becomes routine. Some of our friends actually even would leave their vehicles with significant papers, documents with pictures ready in case they had to evacuate. So it's just, it's part of life. I'm sure if you lived in an area of tornadoes or hurricanes, that you just live life with them, but you always are aware that they could happen. And so you go into the hospital and things are moving quickly. At what point does it become real? It became real when I pulled into the parking area 
which is right next to the ambulance bay for our hospital. We have a, a parking area for our employees. And as I looked over at the bay where we unload and load patients, I suddenly realized that this was not your average day. Something's happening that is extremely significant because we had first responders, law enforcement, a couple ambulances there loading patients. I could see the associates or employees that were there were already in full swing evacuation mode. And so I quickly parked my van, ran over to the ambulance bay to help out. And as I did, I realized the significance of it and called my children immediately and said, hey, you guys, there's a fire. And at that point, I could see the smoke coming up the canyon behind the hospital. And I told them, it's real. Get home, grab the dogs. My mother was living with us at that time. After Malia's death, she came and stayed with us, helped out with our family. And so I, I called her, told her the same thing. Get significant papers, anything important, loaded up. And I told my son, who was 16, to go home, immediately hook our 35-foot toy hauler up to our full-size diesel truck, which he had never done before. He had his driver's license for three weeks. But I told him to do the impossible, and he did. He hooked him up, and I told him to load up our dogs because we have a puppy business called Cedar Creek Puppies, and we raise Bernadoodles. And so my, my children um, crated dogs, put them in, documents. And at that point, I went into the hospital and engaged with our associates in the evacuation process. So we're in full mode evacuation. And what I didn't realize, and none of us did, is that when we called for more ambulances to get our 67 patients out, only two of them had showed up, that there weren't any more ambulances. And even if there were, they couldn't actually make it through the fire to get to us. And so literally, we had two ambulances for 67 patients to get out of our hospital. And so the obvious thing to do was put patients in first responder vehicles. And so we were putting patients in the back of law enforcement cars and Cal Fire vehicles, anything that we could find. And eventually we got to the point where it was personal vehicles. And so thankfully I had driven my minivan to work, the little Honda Odyssey minivan, and the seats fold down in the back so you can basically fit a four by eight sheet of plywood. And I folded the seats down in the back and we had um, a few patients that were extremely critical. And so I waited to the end to make sure we could get as many patients out into other people's vehicles. And I was basically the last vehicle there. And so we took the critical patients that were left that needed extra care and put them in my vehicle. So we ended up in the middle seats, um, placing two patients from our ICU and then a patient that was nonverbal, immobile. He was on hospice care. And so we placed him in the back of my minivan. And that's actually the way I transported patients out of the campfire. Walk me through those moments. The patient's in your car. The fire is moving a football field a minute and you are bumper to bumper trying to escape. What were those moments like for you and what you're saying to one another or how you comfort each other in that moment? Once I loaded patients up at the hospital, you know the, the sky had turned black at that point. It might as well have been the midnight. Smoke was thick because the the fire was coming up the ridge and the hospitals built right on the ridge. And so we actually were even seeing flames at this time. So as we're leaving the hospital campus onto Pence Road, which is the main thoroughfare, you could either turn right and go up the ridge or you can turn left and go down um, towards Chico. And 
I was following the sheriff and he turned right and went up and it was immediate gridlock. I mean, neither one of us could move. And I realized that this is not good. You know, we knew the main front of the fire was coming up the ridge. You could hear it. I mean, it was, it was like a freight train. Just the sound was incredible. And you started hearing explosions too at this point because the fire had started spot fires all over the town of Paradise. And so homes were burning, cars were burning, gas lines were exploding all over town. It was, it was a war zone. And I realized that at that point that I probably wasn't going to make it out of town. We couldn't go anywhere. We were stuck in the middle of this inferno. And so um, I called my children immediately and I said, get out of town. Um, whatever you're doing, drop it. I don't care. Leave, go, go, go. And then I called a friend and said, hey, I'm going to need you to watch over my kids. And I gave him some personal information about bank accounts and just basic things. And then I called my kids back and I told them, I don't know that I'm going to see you again. I love you. Just know that you're important to me. And if God wills it, we'll see each other. And if not, just know that, that I love you. And that was pretty much the conversation with my children. You miraculously make it through. At what point do you know you're safe? And at what point do you learn your children are safe and alive? It took me seven hours to get out of paradise with patients. So in that time frame, it should have taken me probably half an hour at the most to get to the hospital in Chico. So in the, within that time frame, it was loading patients, going through the fire for two hours. We were stuck in gridlock right there on Pence Road in front of the hospital. And once basically the fire burned around us, it burned everything down and you could start to see life and day again. And at that point, we had Cal Fire come and tell us that just up the road, that there was a church parking lot that we could actually go to that's probably one of the safest places in paradise at that point because it was being defended by Cal Fire. And the fire had already burned around us. And so that's where we went to. What had happened, unbeknownst to me at that time, is some of the bulldozers from Cal Fire had arrived in town. And these incredible first responders had pushed vehicles off the road that were blocking our egress out of town. And so at that point, we could choose to stay where we were, but I needed to get patients to the hospital. And that was the only way that they had given me to potentially get out of town and to take them to the next hospital. And so I, as I was driving, it was one of the first cars to, to leave the safety of that parking lot. As I was driving across Paradise, I ran into a wall of flame and smoke. No idea it was on the other side. Nobody had been through it. There was two cars in front of me. Both of them turned around. They weren't willing to drive through. But at this point, it was none of us knew what was on the other side. None of us knew what would happen. You know, there's just a lot of questions, not a lot of answers. And the logical thing for me was I had to get patients out. And so I literally just drove right through the flame, smoke, and thankfully, we were able to pass through there. We drove through the flames and we arrived at that parking lot. And what I didn't realize at that time is that as the fire, the main wall of fire was moving across paradise, that I had just driven through that wall. And so I drove back into the fire. None of us knew any different because this was directive from Cal Fire, from first responders, that this was the way out of town. So eventually found a sheriff's deputy who drove around town looking for a way out for the patients that I had. And so he came back probably an hour later and said, there's just no 
no access for anybody out of paradise yet. And finally, probably about three o'clock, he came back and said, I found a way out. And so he took a couple of us who had patients in our vehicles and we were the first ones from that parking lot to eventually maneuver through town and head down the main road, the Skyway, out into, I guess, an area that had not been affected by the fire. And as I was driving down the Skyway towards the bottom, I was able finally to get cell reception. So I called up my kids and said, ah, did you make it? And one of the sweetest sounds I've ever heard in my life was my kids answering their phone. And I realized that um, we were all safe, that my son for three hours had driven through fire as well with 55 feet of RV doing the impossible for him. And he too was able to get through the fire. Um, They had found a place for us to stay. And so eventually I was able to offload the patients there at Enlo Hospital in Chico and drive over to meet my kids. And giving them a hug was was one of the the greatest events in my life. I did not want to let go. (laughs) My children don't normally hug that hard and and uh, it was probably the hardest hug I ever gave to them as well. It's just a, a very beautiful moment that I will never forget. First of all, I want to share that every patient that was transported out of that hospital made it. Is that correct? That is correct. Amazing. But there are 86 deaths, 19,000 structures, and over 91% of homes. And talking about homes, the aerial footage I saw of your home standing and Every single thing around it essentially burned. I mean, it makes your jaw drop. So your home survives. Mm -hmm. You can't go back because there is, of course, damage, but it's standing. And you live in a trailer and a driveway all together for months with the intention of going back, which you do. Why did you choose to stay after the devastation and sort of living in this home intact with just black burned to the ground every window you look at? There was a lot of opportunity to find a position somewhere else. I'm the chaplain for the hospital and our hospital burned. We had 1,100 employees and I think 280 of them were still employed in our community after the fire. I advocated to stay here. I actually went all the way up to the CEO and president of our organization of Adventist Health and told them that I felt that it was needed and critical to have a chaplain presence for our community, and they agreed. And so even though we were living displaced, uncomfortable, uh, for me, through the six years of Malia's healthcare journey, this community had become our family and our home. Now, people had brought us food, they had prayed for us, they had shown great concern for our family in every way you can imagine. And now at this point for our community, it was my opportunity to give back to them. Everyone was devastated at some level in this community. Even if your home survived, you may not have, have a job. Even if your job survived, you may not have a home. Even if both of them survived, you know, your friends and family, your community is gone. And so the significance of the loss in this community was unprecedented. You know, the number of people that almost lost their life going through the fires to escape was unprecedented as well. Normally, people have the opportunity to leave ahead of a fire. Most of us left through the fire. And so, you know, as a chaplain and someone who loves people in their community, this is really home. This is, this is where I thrive. 
This is where I felt like I was meant to be here for this time and place. To the point of trauma, I know there was psychologists, psychiatrists, people coming in with PTSD, Mm -hmm. working with kids. What would you say are the key things that can help a community heal? I think that finding meaning and purpose in life is important. I mean, it didn't, doesn't really matter what your circumstance is, um, whether it's a healthcare journey, an accident, loss of job, loss of community, that having an intrinsic value in yourself, that you have something that gives you meaning and purpose beyond your circumstances is key. For many people, that's faith. And so in our community after the fire, it was a question of, of ultimately resiliency, you know, and people that were resilient that had maybe in previous circumstances in their life went through some really hard knocks, they were able to get back up and move forward that, that knew how to deal with the trauma and drama that life sends your way. Really the people that did the best through the circumstances that we went through here in the campfire. And so, you know, providing an understanding of that for people was key. So really, I think at the end of the day, it does come back to you know, how we view life as an individual and helping people to find meaning and purpose and value. And for a lot of people, interestingly enough, it was gratitude um, that you know, the optimistic look at life, no matter what life throws at you, which you can't control most of it, some things you can, but m- much of it you can't, just to be able to, to take it in stride and realize, hey, tomorrow is a new day. You know, what can I learn from the circumstances I went through, you know, what's, what's the meaning of it? And sometimes it's not always obvious then, but just being open to realize that maybe someday this will have meaning. And if not, it's something that I personally can learn from. And so for a lot of people, you know, finding gratitude in the basics of life is huge. How does Malia show up for you today? Her journey for me from my children was one where she took life as it came. She didn't complain. You know, we, like anyone, were trying to find the meaning for what she was going through. You know, why? Ask those why questions that are bigger than many times you can answer. I don't know all the whys even for why Malia ended up with cancer and why she passed away. But what she left the kids and I with is a life that showed no matter how hard things get, that. Um, you can look for the things that are of value. And for her, that was her kids, her faith, her family, and others. And so I think her living that out in front of us for six years, the life and death trauma that we went through multiple times, not complaining, realizing that you don't choose these things in life, they choose you, was significant to all of us. The campfire was one of the most devastating, not the most devastating, events that have taken place as far as fires in the state of California. And it devastated this community. But in reality, for our family, we had already went through years of trauma. And I think that the resiliency that we personally had developed in our journeys, my kids, myself, prepared us to go through the campfire better than anything else could have. What does Paradise, California mean to you? It means home. It means community. It means support and care. Brad Brown, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And I know each and every person who listens is going to 
get a lot out of it and, and be moved. So thank you. Mm, thank you. All right. So we do a little thing called rapid fire where I fire off a question and you just say whatever pops in your mind. Sure. And I was laughing because I have a list of questions and one of the questions was favorite curse word. I'm like, I can't ask the chapter that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> I'm gonna, we'll skip that one. I'm yes. Totally skip that one, Brad. Yes. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> Maintain my integrity. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. The place you want to see most in the world. The place I'd like to see the most is Alaska. I enjoy the great outdoors, seeing this natural beauty, grandeur, the majesty of, yeah. you know, of the mountains and, and kind of the untouched parts of this world. So Alaska for me would be one of those places. I'm going to give a shout out to Alaska because we took our family this summer and it was, I had no idea what to expect and it was the best vacation of our life. So was it really? Okay. Oh, oh my gosh. I'll text you pictures. You'll book your travel tomorrow. Please. Yes. <laughs> Favorite food? My favorite food is anything that I don't have to cook. After being a single parent for <laughs> the last couple of years. Favorite song? There's a song called Even If, and it's a Christian song that um, has brought a lot of meaning into my life. And it has to do with, you know, even if God doesn't answer in the way you would like him to, you'll still believe and have faith. Favorite movie? Hmm. I guess maybe it's more of a TV series, if that's an option. Go for it. Magnum PI. It's probably my favorite. Tom Selleck lived here in our community, and I happen to be a car fan. And so I you know, enjoy Magnum PI, the Hawaii life, the exotic cars, um, just kind of the connection here with our community in paradise. The 80s mustache. Yeah, that one I'm not so into, but it worked for him. <laughs> <laughs> the thing you want most for your children. I want my children to be citizens that make a significant difference wherever they live. I want them to be people that are respectable and honorable and place God and others above themselves. Chaplain Brown, thank you for your courage, your bravery, your faith, compassion, perspective. It all makes a difference in people's lives in your community and beyond. So thank you and God bless you. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Today's interview with Brad supports Maranatha Volunteers International. Maranatha helps to build churches all around the world. One of their programs we love is called the One Day Church, where they simply build a church in a day. In areas that are so poor, where people are gathering to worship and pray under trees or ramshackles, they come in and with a simple steel structure, can provide a safe, warm place for people to gather. You can learn more about their work at maranatha.org. That's M-A-R-A-N-A-T-H-A dot org. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed Brad and his story. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram at All The Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.